Have you ever heard someone start to explain a particular idea, and the more you listen, the more you're convinced that they've got it all wrong? Uh, maybe they give bad advice on how to fix something on your car, what to do to make your computer run faster, um, how to budget, whatever it might be. There's any number of things someone might give a particular perspective on that we might disagree with. And at that point, we have several possibilities of how we could respond. We could form a certain opinion of that person in our minds and go about our business. We could come toward that person and uh, angrily confront them and just sort of really explain to them how they're wrong and the right way that this should go. Or we could come with a spirit of kindness, but of gentle correction and say, I don't think what you're saying is true. Let's, let's see, is that really the best way to do that? And honestly, when it comes to things like fixing something on your door on your, in your house, you know, there's a couple of different possibilities. A while back, my, the door wouldn't latch. I could have replaced the whole handle. I replaced just the piece that was broken in the middle of it. Could have replaced the whole door. Theoretically, you could do any one of those three legitimately. When it comes to something like the Bible, the options are more narrowly limited. And the passage we're looking at this morning, here's someone who needed to be further instructed in what the Bible says, particularly on the question of baptism. And so we see a number of things that are helpful to consider, both about the way that we approach that from the person who is doing the correcting, the person that is receiving the correction, and then what is the goal? The goal is spiritual maturity for all of us. And what's the best path to that goal? And I think we'll see that as we look through the passage this morning. So we did a little bit of review from what we looked at, at last week. Uh, turn to Acts 18 if you're not there yet. And uh, I think it's helpful for us to consider uh, verse 18 because it mentions Priscilla and Aquila again, who we first met in chapter 18 in the first few verses. They were tent makers. They were co-workers of Paul. Paul found opportunity for fellowship with them. Sometimes when you encounter a fellow Christian, there's just sort of a connection there. And even though you haven't known them a long time, there's opportunity for fellowship and encouragement. Paul found that with Priscilla and Aquila. And from the point that he met them, he partnered with them in ministry. And so we see that in verse 18, that they accompanied him to Syria. Uh, well, they were heading to Syria. They hadn't quite arrived there. They ended up uh, in Ephesus for a time. And then we're going to see their ministry further here in uh, the end of chapter 18. And there's other places in the New Testament in some of his letters where Paul mentions them as fellow co-workers in the gospel. And so they're the ones who are going to be the means of discipleship for Apollos. Before we get there, just a quick review. Verse 18, Paul was most likely under a kind of Nazarite vow. That was the reason for his haircut. It wasn't so he could look professional when he got back for his missionary report, just to clarify that point. Uh, then they arrive at Ephesus, and he is in Ephesus for a brief time ministering to the Jews. They want him to stay longer, but he says, I have to keep going. I have to go make a report to the church at Antioch. And so uh, instead of staying in Ephesus at a long, for a long time at this point, he actually is going to return there on his third missionary journey. We'll see that at the beginning of chapter 19. 
Paul goes to Caesarea and then greets the church there, goes down to Antioch, and presumably makes a report, even as he had done on his first missionary journey, because that was the church that had sent him out. Verse 23, uh, he spends some time there. It doesn't say exactly how long, perhaps several months. And then he goes back and he revisits the churches that he's already established. This was his pattern. He would see certain churches established, and then whenever possible, he would go back through that region and encourage the people there and uh, continue to strengthen the churches. Now the scene changes to Apollos. What do we know about Apollos? Well, he's a Jew. He is from Alexandria. Alexandria would have been down in Egypt. There was apparently, according to historical records, a fairly sizable Jewish community there at this time. And um, he was someone who is described as eloquent. This perhaps gives us a clue to why he had something of a following in the Corinthian church when Paul writes them the letter in 1 Corinthians. Remember the conflict there. Some say, I'm of a Paul. Others say, I'm of Apollos. Or I'm of Cephas or Peter, I'm of Christ. Why the divisions? Some people remembered Paul in his capacity as having been foundational in the establishing of the church. Some people looked at Apollos and said, here's a new guy who's uh, younger and more appealing and more eloquent, so we're going to follow him. Some of them probably looked at Peter and said, well, Peter... He's like the apostle, so we should follow him. And then some of them claim to follow Christ. But Apollos was a key figure in the history of the Corinthian church, even as Paul had been, but he's not there yet. He came to Ephesus from Alexandria, and it says he was mighty in the scriptures. So this was someone who was well acquainted with the scriptures. I think we should ask ourselves, when he says the scriptures, what is it, what's in view here? Is it... The entirety of the Bible that we have in front of us at the moment, uh, he would have primarily been speaking probably of the Old Testament scriptures because there had been specific letters written to specific churches by this point, but not a great deal of them, and they would not have been widely circulated yet. So, mighty in the scriptures meant that he would have been well-versed in the Old Testament. He was also not without any training. Verse 25, this man had been instructed in the way of the Lord. It's probably not far-fetched to see in this phrase, the way of the Lord, a parallel to uh, how Luke has described Christianity earlier in the book. What did Paul oppose? He opposed followers of the way. So when it says the way of the Lord, he had some acquaintance with Christ and his ministry. Not only that, not only was he trained, not only was he eloquent, but he was also energetic. He was fervent. Uh, I don't know if you've, you've met people like this. You meet them, and they're just seemingly overflowing with energy. Young kids are often like this. The more that we grow older, the less we tend to be like that. Although there are people uh, here and there who, who retain that sort of boundless energy. How does it describe his ministry? He was speaking and teaching accurately the things concerning Jesus being acquainted only with the baptism of John, and he began to speak out boldly in the synagogue. There's an interesting paradox here in the sense that it says he had been instructed in the way of the Lord and was speaking and teaching accurately the things concerning Jesus, but was only acquainted with the baptism of John. We have to ask ourselves, what was the baptism of John? We won't turn back to the Gospels, but just to describe it briefly, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. John the Baptist was preparing the way 
for the coming of Christ. Remember what he said? There's one coming after me who's mightier than me. I'm not even worthy to untie his sandal. I will, in, I will decrease. He will increase. I'm a, I'm a messenger in the wilderness preparing the way of the Lord. And so John the Baptist had a very specific view of his ministry. His job was to proclaim the kingdom of God, to call people to repentance, and to prepare the way for Christ. It seems that at some point in his history, Apollos had become acquainted with the baptism of John, either because he had been in Israel and had experienced it himself, or some of John's disciples had traveled to where he was and he had been baptized in that way. But it seems strange that it would say he is only acquainted with the baptism of John and yet was speaking and teaching accurately the things concerning Jesus. What seems to have taken place is that somehow in Apollos' life, he was acquainted with the ministry of Christ, at least for the three years of Jesus' earthly ministry, but perhaps not with the events that took place afterward in terms of Jesus' specific promises about the Holy Spirit it seems that Apollos did not have an awareness of what had happened at Pentecost in Acts 2. And we ask ourselves, well, how is this possible? Well, we have to consider the time and the place. Awareness of events would have spread largely through word of mouth. It wasn't as though someone posted something on Twitter or on Facebook or on a billboard and then immediately everybody knew about it. So it is quite possible that in his travels... He had not encountered those from Pentecost. It seems unlikely, but it's certainly possible. And so uh, this then raises the question, was he genuinely a believer? And there's, there's arguments on both sides that he was not a believer, that he was a believer. I personally believe that he was a Christian because of the description of him as mighty in the scriptures, instructed in the way of the Lord, and particularly the phrase, speaking and teaching accurately the things concerning Jesus. I think the picture we have here is someone who is aware of truth about God, wants people to know the truth about God, and is lacking knowledge and instruction on a particular point. So what's the response of Priscilla and Aquila? They could have said, this guy is really energetic, he's doing a good work, why should we interfere with his ministry? And that's sometimes our natural response when we see somebody saying things that were like, that's not quite right, but, but, but they're, they're more fervent than maybe I've ever been, so, so why would I interfere with it? But Priscilla and Aquila recognized that him understanding truth about God better would only serve to help his ministry, not to hinder it. And so they were willing to overcome the potential challenges or frustration or hesitation that all of us have when we see something that's not quite right and we're a little bit unsure about how to approach it. They seemingly approached him kindly and carefully, but just said, there's more things that you need to know about Jesus and who he is and about the church as a whole. Um, now, I will admit, it doesn't say kindly and carefully in those sorts of things. But there is evidence throughout Scripture that that's the way that we're supposed to approach these sorts of issues. Galatians 6, for example. If you see someone sinning, approach them humbly. If you see someone suffering, approach them kindly. 
Or in Thessalonians, it says, Admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone. So, at the very least, we don't know the specific details of the words that they said, of the tone that they used, but we do know that the testimony of Scripture is, in these kinds of situations, here's how you're supposed to approach them. Uh, I think this ties in very well with the discussion that we've been having in Sunday School on the subject of conscience. It's really easy for us to say, I know what's right, you're wrong, you need to fix it. And there is a time and a place for that when someone is stubbornly refusing to acknowledge the truth and change in light of it. But at the beginning of any confrontation, unless there is just such a clear rejection of truth about God that it just has to be dealt with immediately and, and, and certainly and all of those sorts of things, we should be willing to be a little bit patient with each other. Because our knowledge is limited, we have not yet arrived, and even more importantly than both of those things, God's been patient with us. Now, if someone stands up and they say something like, Jesus is not God, okay, you've got to come down hard on that. You can't just say, oh, it's okay, we'll get around to it when we get around to it. But what was the specific issue that Apollos was off on? Apollos seemed to lack information on the nature of baptism connected with the early church and potentially, in connection with that, on the ministry of the Holy Spirit. That being said, that baptism, while very important, I mean, obviously we're a Baptist church, is not the most important thing. And so I think Apollos... Uh, being off on that point did not mean that he couldn't minister, did not mean that he wasn't a believer, but it did mean that he needed further instruction. And so we see in verse 25, the way of the Lord. Verse 26, the way of God is explained more accurately. He already has some knowledge of what it means to follow God. Now it's been explained to him more accurately. And then it seems that this was a process that had taken perhaps some measure of time because verse 27, he wanted to go across to Achaia. The brethren encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. And when he arrived, he greatly helped those who had believed through grace. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, demonstrating by the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. Now, the church probably did not at this point have Paul's instruction about, certainly not because uh, Timothy's ministry uh, was really enhanced later on and Paul writing to him at a later date. But it seems likely that there would have been some period of time in which Apollos was being instructed. It wasn't like, all right, get baptized. Here's a few things about the Holy Spirit. All right, now go. There's probably some measure of training and of time that's elapsed because um, the brethren are wholeheartedly convinced that he's ready to go and do this ministry, potentially representing the church there, going on their behalf. And so, uh, along those lines, uh, Paul's admonition to Timothy was, if someone wants to have a role in teaching doctrine, there should be a measure of training and of time and of maturity, and not just somebody gets saved, all right, send them right out. That doesn't mean that someone can't witness about Christ from the moment they trust him. It does mean if they're going to have a more broad role in ministry, there should at least be some preparation. Paul's reason for saying so is that it's possible for someone to think, I know it all, I've got all the answers, and Satan to tempt that person through pride. 
In Apollos' case, if he had immediately been sent out in ministry, knowing only the baptism of John, that would not have helped those churches that he was going to minister to because he would have not have been able to teach them all of the things about Scripture that he needed to teach them. The powerfully refuting the Jews in public, demonstrating by the Scriptures that Jesus was the Christ, this certainly echoes Paul's ministry. And so we see, I think, several things. We see the fact that although Paul is perhaps the key character that we see in the majority of the book of Acts, particularly from uh, chapter 11 onward, he is certainly not the only one through whom God is working. Furthermore, there is opportunity for the church to continue to train and to prepare people for ministry. Sometimes people are unwilling to do this because they feel like it's a threat to them. I don't know if you've ever been in a job where you're like, well, if I teach everybody else the things that I know, what need do they have of me? And that's the real concern in the corporate world. But in the church, that should not be our attitude. Our attitude should be the more people who are prepared, the more people who are equipped, the better. It shouldn't be somebody, you know, gets to be in their 20s and they're like, you know what, I want to go out as a missionary and they're not ready because we've said, well, we're not going to start preparing them back here 10 years before when they are more than capable of having opportunities to do the sorts of work that they would need to do if they're going to be a good missionary or a pastor or a Sunday school teacher or whatever else. Um, should there be some preparation? Yes. Should it be like, we're going to go 5, 10, 15 years before we ever let anybody do anything because we don't feel like they're quite ready yet? I don't think that that's the attitude that we see here in this passage. So when someone needs further instruction on a particular issue, particularly when that issue is not a central point of doctrine, how are we going to approach it? Carefully approach that person and say, here's what the Bible says. What does that mean? It means the person who's receiving the instruction has to be willing to get it. It means the person giving the instruction has to be willing to give it and adapt it to the person who's, who's receiving it. Our goal should be that all of us are growing in spiritual maturity. And the title of the message that discipleship enhances evangelism, or ministry in general, honestly, is the fact that by doing this, Priscilla and Aquila helped Apollos' ministry. They didn't hinder it. They helped the church that he was both at and would go to. They didn't hurt it. And so it is only beneficial if, as we see gaps in one another's awareness of the truth or skill or those sorts of things, that we come alongside each other and collectively encourage each other to be better prepared for ministry. I won't spend a great deal of time on this, but verse 26, it says, Priscilla and Aquila heard him. They took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. We have to ask ourselves, how does this reconcile with Paul's later teaching on the subject of women teaching men? And I'd simply say this. I don't think that this is the same sort of context as a woman leading a church as the pastor. I do think that sometimes we take what Paul says about a woman shouldn't lead the church as a pastor, and then we sort of take it way far out here and we say, 
And so there's no place for women teaching the Bible or, or knowing the Bible well or all of those sorts of things. I think that there is a very real necessity in our churches for women to know the scriptures and to be ready to teach the scriptures, particularly to other ladies. Why do I say this? If you walk into your average Christian bookstore and pick up a ladies' Bible study, half of them will probably be heretical and another 30% will probably be no good. I mean, I'm just being honest. I'm not trying to be harsh. I'm not trying to be unkind. There is a lot of junk out there that purports to be good Bible studies for women. Now, to be fair, there are similarly bad Bible studies for men, but I don't think the numbers are quite as bad. Why do ladies need to know how to present the scripture? So that you don't pick up one of those Bible studies and say, oh, this sounds good, and it completely misuses the, the scripture. Or, um, so that when another lady approaches you and says, I don't know what to do in this situation, and, and I need help, you just say, well, I'm sorry I can't help you. I, I, I'm, I'm not ready. All of us have a responsibility to know God's word. Men, women, boys, girls, all of us have a responsibility to know God's word and be ready to explain it to others. Along those lines, I think that there is a sense in which um, there are a couple of women who've written very good commentaries on particular books of the Bible, and I don't think that that necessarily means that it's a problem for me to pick up and read one of those commentaries and benefit from it. Again, I think Paul's specific view was men are supposed to lead the church because partially because when men aren't leading the church, it's because they're sitting back passively and not fulfilling their God-given responsibilities in a lot of other ways, and partially because it's a burden, and God designed us differently, and, and, and that's just the way that he wants it to work. But again, all of those things together do not mean women shouldn't know the Scripture, shouldn't study the Scripture, shouldn't follow God better. All of us together must know God better, must know the scripture, and must be ready to share truth about the scripture. Chapter 19. So Apollos is in Corinth, and he's going to minister there for a while and have a successful ministry there. He's also going to have successful ministry in other places. Paul speaks of him at the end of 1 Corinthians and also in the book of Titus and encourages uh, the various churches in those places to, uh, to give him help and support in his ministry. So his ministry continues, but he's moving off the scene for a time. So now we come back to Paul's ministry. Paul passed through the upper country and came to Ephesus and found some disciples. So if you remember what he had said um, in verse 21 of chapter 18, I will return to you again if God wills. God had led Paul and given him an opportunity to return to Ephesus. He finds some disciples, and it's interesting that he does not say he finds some Christians, or he finds a church, or he finds believers. It just says he finds some disciples. And I think it will be made clear who they are disciples of in just a moment. Verse 2, he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said to him, no, we have not even heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what then were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. So again, we have the question of whether these were genuine believers. There's a couple of points that I think we have to recognize. First of all, even though the Holy Spirit um, 
immediately baptizes someone who believes in Christ into the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians 12 talks about this, other passages as well. Even though that takes place at the moment of salvation, there is in the book of Acts a disconnect between that invisible spiritual reality and the outward recognition and, and showing forth of that truth. So you think about uh, Pentecost. Many of those present at Pentecost, particularly the disciples, already knew God, already were, uh, had heard the gospel, trust in Christ, and so forth. But the visible outpouring of the Holy Spirit did not come upon them for a number of days. So, there is in the book of Acts a gap between conversion and the outward signs of the coming of the Holy Spirit. There is also the reality of uh, the signs of the Spirit coming upon people as evidence of the gospel spreading to different groups of people. Now, this incident is not as significant as perhaps the ones in Acts 2, 8, and 10, where the, this Holy Spirit came upon the Jews, the Samaritans, and the Gentiles. And yet, it does support this further idea that the Holy Spirit is behind the work of God coming to all of these different groups of people. There is also, as we saw in the case of Apollos, a gap in knowledge between those who had said, I am ready for the coming of the Christ, and those who had actually heard all of the details about Christ and had accepted it. So was it possible for these to have been saved? I would say yes, but I'm not going to be dogmatic on that. And the reason is that if we think about the way of salvation in the Old Testament, we start way back here with Adam and Eve. What did Adam and Eve have to believe about Christ? what it says in Genesis 3.15. God's sending one who will crush the power of the serpent, who will be bruised on his heel, who will bring victory over sin. That's not a lot of information, right? The important thing to keep in mind, the object of their faith is the same as the object of our faith. The difference is the amount of detail that they knew. They knew one is coming who will defeat Satan. We know a whole lot more about who Christ is. And so conceivably, at this point in the life of the early church, there, there are people here who have been baptized by John's baptism in expectation of the coming of the Messiah, who had not yet heard about him, but had him as their object of faith, and theoretically could have been, in that sense, Christians or believers. That being said, I think we have to be very careful because there are people today who will then say, well, I just sort of have this vague sense that there's a God out there. There's a difference between John saying the Messiah is coming very soon, be baptized in preparation for his coming, and someone saying, I get a warm, fuzzy feeling when I think about the idea of a God. We just have to be really careful to recognize those are not the same thing. People will then say, well, but if this person hasn't had an opportunity to hear the gospel, how could God possibly be so heartless as to condemn that person to, um, to hell, to punishment? Or the way that C.S. Lewis puts it in one of his books, um, 
there's a guy who's supposed to be serving Aslan, the key Christ figure in the Chronicles of Narnia, but he wasn't actually serving him. He was serving this sort of pagan god. And in, in um, Lewis's book, he says, well, I sort of took all the things that you did for that god and I accepted them as to myself. That's not how God works. They're not bad books overall, but on that point, Lewis was very wrong. God doesn't just say, you know what? You serve Allah, that's great. Anything you did for Allah, I'll take it as service to me. You serve, um, sorry to say Baal, Buddha. <laughs> uh, I'll just sort of accept that as, as service to me. You serve some sort of vague spiritual force connected with various Eastern mysticism, that's okay, I'll take it as service to me. God doesn't do that. So again, is it possible that these were believers? Yes. But there's a very narrow window in which it was acceptable for people to have been baptized in preparation for the coming of the Messiah, be looking for the coming of the Messiah, and have a gap in information, not in belief. I don't know that that same sort of parallel exists today. What's Paul's response? Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in him who was coming after him, that is, in Jesus. Again, could have come to these people. They said, we haven't heard about the Holy Spirit. Paul's like, I don't want to hurt their feelings. I don't want to bother them. I don't want them to think badly of me. So I'm just going to be like, eh, I'm not going to say anything. Paul felt a responsibility, as I think we should feel, to say, if someone is lacking in information about who Jesus is, that he has come, and all those sorts of things, tell them the truth. And what's their response? This is the part that we're sometimes afraid of. They're not going to accept it. They're not going to like it. They're not going to want to receive it. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So, whether they were saved before this point or at the point when they heard the truth that Paul is sharing with them, how do we know that they are now saved? Because they're baptized in the name of Christ, and that parallels all the examples of conversion pretty much that we see in the book of Acts. We see an interesting thing in verse 6. When Paul had laid his hands upon them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking with tongues and prophesying. Why is this account here in the scriptures? I think what Luke is doing is he is tying together the preparatory ministry of John the Baptist with the fulfillment of that ministry in the work of Christ with the message that the of the gospel that's being proclaimed by the apostles. He's showing that all of these things are closely connected. That it's not, here's John and Christ is doing his own thing and Paul is doing something different but that they were successive phases in the ministry that God was doing to reveal the Messiah, to build the church, and an evidence of the fact that this was in fact God's work was the coming of the Holy Spirit shown through tongues and prophesying. Some make much of this idea of Paul laying his hands upon them. Uh, I think, again, this was a symbolic action. It's not as though the moment that he touched them, this happened as though it was some sort of magic force being transmitted through his hands. I think it was a symbolic action of Paul saying, you've been baptized as believers, and, and saying, uh, here, here is the coming of the Holy Spirit. We saw something similar to this uh, earlier in the book of Acts with the account of Simon. And um, in the account of Simon, um, you remember that uh, he saw the apostles uh, preaching and uh, laying on the hands of the Holy Spirit and the response of them was that, his response was, 
I want this too. I want to be able to like give people this gift. And their point was simply to say, we are recognizing work that God has done, and God's the one that's giving the gift. It's not something that we're like controlling or causing to happen of our own strength. Verse 7 is another of those verses that's puzzling. It says, there were in all about 12 men. Why does he say about? Because 12 is not a hard number to count, right? I think, I mean, the, the short answer is we don't know. The longer answer is, I think that he said about because while there is a continuity, perhaps, with the idea of the 12 apostles and the, the gospel coming to the Jews and these 12 men and the gospel coming to the Gentiles, I think he doesn't want to stress that connection too much and have people be confused on that point. Uh, there's a different role of the apostles than of these 12 men who have now been um, converted or at the very least properly baptized. I think Luke's just trying to give an accurate historical account. Verse 8, he entered the synagogue and continued speaking out boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. He, at this point, is Paul and continues speaking out boldly for three months. And again, he is trying to reason with and persuade the Jews about the kingdom of God. When some were becoming hardened and disobedient, speaking evil of the way before the people, he withdrew them from them and took away the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. This took place for two years so that all who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. A couple of quick observations about this. Three months is a longer time than Paul was usually able to go before there was significant opposition. Secondly, when he says persuading them about the kingdom of God, I think John is, or, uh, Luke is again stressing the connection between the message of John the Baptist, the message of Christ, and the message that Paul was proclaiming. He refers to it in a variety of ways, but here he refers to it as things about the kingdom of God. Uh, we see again the typical responses we see throughout the book. Some became hardened and were disobedient. Some wanted to hear further. We don't see that specifically outlined here, but some had actually accepted. How do we know that there were those who had accepted? It says he took away the disciples from the synagogue. The disciples, at the very least, was the group that he saw at the beginning of chapter 19, but possibly others who believed at this point as well. And uh, we see God's hand in giving him further opportunities because not only was he there for three months, but he was also able to minister for an additional two years. So Paul has now ministered here uh, longer, it seems, than he was even able to minister at Corinth. And so we see God blessing the ministry of Paul. So what do we see about this section? Seems disconnected. Apollos, baptism of John, needs to hear some more truth. Disciples of John needed to hear some more truth about Christ, possibly to be converted, but at the very least to be properly baptized. What are we supposed to conclude from this? The message that John the Baptist proclaimed, the message that Christ proclaimed, and the message that Paul proclaimed were all the same message, although further detail was revealed at each point along the way. Also, there is an opportunity in connection with discipleship, with the building of the church, for there to be further instruction, for that instruction to be received, and for ministry to be improved and to go forward and for God to bless, through the work of the Holy Spirit, the building of his church. So, 
I think it's important for us to remember what we believe today. And this is an interesting point because sometimes people will say, well, you know, independent Baptist church, you have no sense of history, no sense of connection with anything. The thing that connects us to the ministry of the apostles is not a church hierarchical structure, is not a specific set of traditions, is not a particular kind of liturgy. The thing that can and must connect us to the ministry of the early church is the gospel message and the change that it transforms us by. So for those who say, our church has no connection with the early church because we can't trace the church went from here to here to here to here to here. We don't need that. The question is, is the message that we are proclaiming the same message that was proclaimed then? Is it transforming lives like it did then? Is it producing those who follow after Christ the way that it did then? And if so, then there is a connection between us and the early church, and we are accurately representing the apostolic message. The point about discipleship. Are we looking for opportunities to encourage one another and to say, where am I lacking in truth about God? Where are you lacking in truth about God? Or perhaps even more importantly, where are we all lacking in doing the things that we already know? Let us encourage one another to keep growing in whether it be knowledge or whether it be application of that knowledge or both of those things so that we are more mature and more equipped to minister for God faithfully. And then finally, we see, as we have seen all throughout the book, the one who accomplishes this work is not us. It's not ultimately Paul. It's not ultimately Apollos or Priscilla and Aquila or unnamed various believers in the early days. The one who accomplishes this work is, is God. The ministry of the Holy Spirit is what keeps pushing this forward. That should give us confidence. That should give us encouragement. That should give us conviction. Because when we say, I don't think I'm ready for the job of encouraging another Christian to be a better Christian. It's not ultimately your strength that has to prevail. The Holy Spirit can and does equip you to do the things that God has called you to do. That should give us hope. That should give us confidence. And so let's make sure that when we see some kind of error or lack of information that we seek to point those around us to Scripture so that we are all more mature in our knowledge and in our application of that knowledge. When we question whether what we are doing has purpose, has connection to what was happening here in Acts, compare the message. What did they teach? What are we trying to teach? And when we say, I'm not sure that I have the ability or the strength or the skill to do this, work at it, but recognize the Holy Spirit is the one who gives you the power to do all these things. Let's close in prayer. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to look at your word together. We thank you for the fact that you minister in and among us even today as you did then. We pray that we would recognize that, that we would faithfully follow you, and that you would be pleased by these things. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.